Saratoga still has a couple of weeks to run, and we have two terrific turf stakes this weekend, the Grade 1 Diana and the Grade 1 Four Star Dave. If you have someone interested in signing up, make sure they sign up with Naira Bets. They can earn up to $200 in a sign-up bonus with the promo code Rewind. That's promo code Rewind using NairaBets.com or the Naira Bets app. Welcome to episode 48 of Redboard Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. And today my special guest is an old friend of the Woodbine racing circuit, Don Lupel. We covered three races from last Saturday's Woodbine Plate Trial Day. Those races are 8, 9, and 10. And some angles that we go over are reviewing races to find a good trainer intent, some more good tips on good bankroll management, and what is a good late turf fraction for certain distances and turf routes. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old Now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Dawn Lupel. Dawn, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Really nice to be talking with you, Spencer. Super happy to have you on the show. How uh, how was your last weekend, Ben? How have you? Uh, how was Saratoga? How was handicapping a little bit of Woodbine for this podcast? Uh, it was good. It was good to revisit Woodbine. I, I must say, I've been focusing a little bit on uh, the Naira circuit, uh, quite a bit actually, on the Naira circuit. Saratoga is challenging, <laughs> as everyone knows. Everyone who uh, does handicapping, it is. It is. Well, they don't call it the graveyard of favorites for anything, or for no reason. So, it's been fun, though. It's really nice to really sink into a different track, and uh, it's a good way to expand your handicapping skills. I know that we had just talked about it. it's been a year since you stepped away from doing the on-air stuff. What was what was the first kind of month or two like stepping away from that where you kind of just had that freedom you weren't always on that, you know, schedule of the racetrack, so to speak? It was weird. It was honestly very, very weird because although, like, I originally, I started my broadcasting career back in Edmonton in 1995 so i'd been doing at northlands park so i'd been doing a variety of different things in broadcasting for uh for all that time um you know i was training and uh, training standard breads for a while too training and outing and breeding but always doing the handicapping and then i started at woodbine geez 10 it was 10 years that i was there so it was weird to suddenly have like weekends where I didn't have to go in in the summer. Like I didn't even know what it was like <laughs> to have a summer weekend off in Toronto. It was quite bizarre. Um, I miss it though. I mean, absolutely. If things were a little different, if the, the virus hadn't happened, I probably would have found myself back at the track, um, either clocking in the mornings, like just doing my own personal mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but you know, with the restrictions, it's a little bit tough, but hopefully things kind of lighten up in the future and we can get back to more normal let's kind of get into uh the nitty-gritty of like woodbine being the synthetic track what do you kind of feel like is the biggest difference between synthetic tracks and the dirt track that people struggle with um i guess you know when you when you're used to dirt track racing you you get your rain days you know and you i think you really look for biases more you can get an, an edge on the crowd if you watch how the racetrack is playing. Synthetic tends to be a little bit more consistent is what I've found. I think if you spend your time looking for a bias, you'll always find one, right? Because that's what you go into mm-hmm. it with the intention. You say, oh, it was, it was all speed today. Well, if every single horse was two to one that was winning, was it a speed favoring track or is it just that the best horses were speed horses? I always struggled with that. But I do find that the synthetic tends to play a little bit more consistent. It plays a, probably a little bit more like turf. We had two very distinct synthetic surfaces at Woodbine, of course, starting with the poly track. And then when that reached its uh, expiration date mm-hmm. and needed to re- be replaced, going to the Tapita. And I like the Tapita. I found it to be quite a bit more like uh, like turf racing. Uh, the horses 
a lot of horses could bounce back and forth. Some definitely couldn't. Some were either grass horses and useless on synthetic or vice versa. Um, but it, it's kind of a kind surface. So, yeah, for handicapping it, horses, I think you find the best horse and I think you've got a good chance. You don't have to worry so much about the speed getting away on you. You said the tapita play is more like turf. Do you feel like that allows more horses to run more frequently? You know, sometimes we'll see a horse run a huge buyer on the dirt track and then we don't see them, him or her for six months. And I know that with the field sizes being what they are, how people complain so much, it must be nice to always have horses be able to come back if they can, you know, three weeks every single time. Well, that was a, a lot to do with putting the track in in the first place. Not to mention that, you know, when you race in Toronto or we're in Canada and they're racing from April until December. So you're getting temperatures that swing from minus 20 Fahrenheit. No, hopefully not, you know, in right. December, but you can, you can get pretty cold. Like you're, you're sitting, you know, somewhere around, um, 20, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, a lot of days in the winter. And then in the summer you can get up to eighties, low nineties, very humid. So the, the range of temperatures was hard to keep a dirt track to be safe, consistent, everything else. And the, the synthetic allowed less race dates to be canceled. And it did seem to be kinder on the horse. Now, it depends on which trainer you talk to. They say, although you don't get the um, probably the same incidence of massive breakdowns, which is fabulous nobody wants to see that you know it's always about taking care of the safety of the horses and the and the jockeys of course um, but you get a lot of you get more you know injury you, you still get horses will get a little bit sore they can get sore behind and stuff like a lot of guys would train woodbine's lucky because they have a separate training track that's actually dirt mm -hmm. there were some trainers that would swear by staying off of the synthetic unless they were racing on it they would train on the dirt track all the time and then go over and race on the synthetic so again it was a personal thing but i think to make a general statement, I would say that it's a little bit kinder and it would, to go back to your original statement, uh, allow horses to run on a more consistent basis. You had said, too, if it wasn't for the coronavirus, you might be clocking in the morning. What is, uh, what are, tell us some of your secrets when it comes to clocking horses. Like, what are you looking for? Is it? I know a lot of people say it's not anything about the time. It's all about how they look. But people mm -hmm. can't get out in the morning and they can't see the horses. So a lot of people just have to go off the time. So... Is there any, you know, certain trainer intent where, like, you like to see a horse, maybe he'll go a couple, like, two threes, two fours, and then a five for a first-time starter? That way they have the horse, you know, as, you know, fully set as they can before they get that first race into them? Yeah, I think that's important. I always like to see, like, the next to last or, the, or even three workouts back, either two workouts back or three workouts back being the big fast one, like whether a mm -hmm. gate work for the two-year-olds. Uh, where they really got the horse's mind on business, I think it's a chance for the trainers to find out exactly what they have. Uh, if they don't know by then, they, they'll usually work in company. If it's one of the better horses, they'll work with something more established, and they find out what they have. And then the, the work right before the race is like a maintenance as they find the spot, and then they get ready to go. And I think you need to follow, if you can follow trainer tendencies, the best thing for people who are new to the game and who really want to get an edge is to study the races when they're over. You know, absolutely. And this is, this is the best show for it. We're redboarding all day long. Look and see why the horse won the race. If it's a horse that has no form, if you're looking at a bunch of two-year-old first-time starters, look at how the trainer prepared the horse, you know, in terms of how quick the workouts were, how they were spaced apart. I really like to see regular works, you know, like, like every seven to ten mm -hmm. days. Uh, I think that's important without any big gaps in them. That's ideal. If there's gaps, it means either the horse shipped from somewhere or there was an issue. A horse might have come down with the sniffles or something. You don't know. But definitely regular workouts. Um, a couple of quicker ones are good. But knowing what the trainers do overall and then watching for their specific patterns is important too. Some trainers train fast. They they like their their babies to go fast. And others will just take a more methodical you know, they'll go a bunch of half miles and you won't see them go faster than 48 and change. And uh, and that's okay, too, if that's pretty consistent with the trainer's overall methodology. I feel like it's something that I know it's hard when people say, like, oh, if life, you know, got to get the kids to school in the morning. It's hard for me to spend, you know, more than an hour or two handicapping a card. But I feel like if you don't have that time in the morning to do it and you could spend just, like, spend one week going over your favorite track and really looking at, like, the horses that shipped in and how they did, like, 
for Saratoga when I was in the Bet Squad, I was on it for three years until this year, and unfortunately we couldn't do it. But the first year, hmm. uh, Finger Lakes horses, I would just cross out, wouldn't even look at them. And uh, they didn't do too well. The second year, three or four of them won, and it was for a very specific couple trainers. And that third year, I hit some really nice prices on a couple of Finger Lakes horses that won, just from realizing, oh, a, a Finger Lakes horse a couple years ago probably couldn't win, and everyone sticks with that stigma. But they, if they're under the certain right hands and capable hands of certain trainers, they do end up winning. And when everyone sees that you know C-level tier track and they're up at the A-plus a track of Saratoga, they don't even look at those type of horses. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, you're looking for an edge, you know, you know, whatever it is, because it's paramutual wagering. So you're betting against the other betters. And it's so important to have an insight like that. And I feel, you know, if you're, if you're cool about racing being, um, you know, a, a fun pastime, and you're not that serious about making money, then great. You know, there's worse ways to, you know, you might win. Uh, you're, you know, you're up against it a little bit because you are competing against other people who do do this for a living. Like that's what I'm doing right now. I'm professional and I watch replays and I look up trainer stats. I think if you're, if you have a little bit of time to invest, the best thing would be to at least look at the replay charts every day. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that could take you maybe 10 minutes to just, even if you're just playing on Saturdays and Sundays, just get a hold like in the mornings, just say, okay, well, they raced. It was a Wednesday yesterday, like Saratoga or, you know, Thursday for Woodbine. Say, okay, they raced yesterday. I'm just going to go through and see, you know, did the track look like it was playing a certain way? Is there a certain jockey or trainer who's on a roll right now? Because identifying like much like you did, when you can find something that's working that wasn't working before, people are very slow. We're, we're creatures of habit. Right. I mean, we, we're a little lazy <laughs> in the things that we do. We want things to always stay the same. Well, it doesn't work that way. And when things do change, if you can jump on it early enough, you can you can shake out those good prices and make your whole season in one week. And I think that's the big thing is it was so funny. Uh, my uh, my fiance actually just got engaged last weekend. Uh, I took oh, her congratulations. Up to <laughs> Thank How you exciting. so much. I, uh, I took her up to Saratoga for the first time last year, and by, like, the fifth race, she comes back to me. She goes, who is this Chad Brown guy? All I hear on everyone's <laughs> name is this stupid Chad Brown guy. And I'm like, well, he's a big-time trainer. She goes, I don't want to play any of his horses. I don't care if this guy wins or loses. So uh, she uh, – it's just – and it's a fun thing. I brought her up to the track. She enjoyed it. She actually made some money compared to, you know, doing the good old dinner and a, dinner and a movie date night where it's, you know yeah. – 60 80 bucks down the drain and maybe even if the food is amazing and, and the movie's great you don't have a chance to win that money back as you do when you do a gambling thing like this even you know if you're a sports guy and she is too and you want to go watch the ncaa tournament for the first day you can put a couple dollars down depending on what state you live in right now and just people look at gambling as so taboo and to me it's just it's another thing you can do on a fun saturday night or you know wednesday afternoon yeah, absolutely. It's like anything else. You know, you you have to be realistic. Like when you're going dinner and a movie, you pretty much have an idea of how much it's going to cost mm -hmm. you, you know, like depending on uh, where you're going, it could be 100, 200, whatever. And if you keep that same mindset in, in uh, you know, in play when you go to the races and say, you know what, I'm taking 100 bucks. And I want to sit here and play all the races. So I'm not going to bet $100 in the first race. I'm going to ration. Maybe I'll have a budget and I'll say I'll play 10 bucks a race. Or you don't play every race and you really look for a spot that you think you can make the money and you focus on there. So, yeah, it, it's like anything else. They're treated properly, it is an absolutely fantastic pastime. Now, you also said that uh, you've now gone professional, quote unquote, how big of an importance is bankroll management to you? Let's get into that quick Huge. little talk. It's it's everything. It, it's everything. I mean, when you when you run out of bullets, you're done. So it's important to have a bankroll that's separate from anything else in your life. Um, it helps to think of the bankroll as not rent money mm -hmm. <laughs> or food money. Yeah, because you need to be emotionally detached. That's the biggest undoing, I think, is when you get too upset because it's tough. It, it, you know, bad beats happen. You can have you can have done done all the work, put in the time, 
And then something happens, you know, maybe you don't know, but something upset your horse the night before and he's just not himself or something happens in a race where you've got the best horse and the trip just doesn't work out. That happens constantly. So you need to be able to get through that without losing your mind. That's the biggest thing. So bankroll management, not investing again. If you put all your money on one horse, there's a good chance something untoward will happen because that's just the way the racing gods work. Uh, there is no such thing as a sure thing ever. And so, yeah, manage the bankroll. You know, there's multiple different ways you can do it. You can do it the Kelly criterion. You can do it um, just flat back percentages. There's a bunch of different ways. So research what's comfortable with you. And I think comfort level is a big thing, too. Like some people can get shaking in their boots to put $20 to win on a horse. Mm-hmm. And if that's your comfort level, that's fabulous. Don't go beyond that. Uh, if you want to do it professionally, you probably have to invest a little bit more than that. But again, it's it's having the bankroll to back it up. So I would say for anyone, that is absolutely the most important thing that there is. I think that's the thing, too. I've talked to a couple of new guys uh, who a couple right from me for the Daily Gallup website that I'm a part of. And I said, what, what do you want to do for the Del Mar this meet? And they say, well, let's start with $500 bankrolls. I said, well, if we're going to do flat bet, it would be, you know, let's say we take 5% a day of your bankroll, which Mm-hmm. It's probably on the higher side. So I said, you got 25 bucks a day. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's funny watching them because I kind of studied what they did. And they would, you know, the first couple of days, they'd be all right. They might lose a little bit and they'd still stay to it. But as soon as they thought they found a good pick five sequence, you know, they're like, so I couldn't do 25 today. I did 40 because of the pick five. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, that's $15 over. So if you're even going to do $25 a day for a week, we have to take $15 off. Now you're down to 10 for the next day to go. Well, why is that? Well, because you overspent on this day and you're playing a much tougher wager. That's the other thing, too. Everyone loves the low takeout pick fives, but I've always said this. If you're not a positive win better and you're trying to pick five in a row, I just don't see the mental fortitude where that's even possible. Unless if you are just so amazingly good as a wagerer that you can hit the, you know, two out of 20. But because your tickets are so good, you're still going to end up making money. It's possible, you know. I mean, like, the, thank goodness for people like um, Steve Chris, who, mm-hmm. who, you know, showed you how you can build tickets that have a better chance of success. So it's a real art form, and I always suggest to people if you want to play the big lottery bets, you know, if you're shooting for the the one score. And let's face it, if you're playing those and you get the one, that can be your whole season. You don't even have to win all the time, but you have to have a huge bankroll to support it. Uh, because it's a it, if you're betting for actually making money, you need to put in the money. You can't win. You you really can't get the pick fives playing twenty bucks. You know you got to be willing to spend a little bit more and cover your bases. I like to if I'm doing that, I'm not big on the the jackpot the big big wagers. Mm-hmm. I like to kind of you know stick with the more. Um, uh, wagers that I can focus more clearly on. Like I like verticals. I like playing exactas. I like playing in race. If I'm playing uh, something further out, I might look at like a pick three and see if I can build value with a horse that's maybe a little bit too short of a price. But I would say have a separate bankroll. You know, you have your exotics bankroll that you're willing to kind of watch take big hits. Uh, and then you have money that you play with because the worst thing is, and, and we all do it, you, you're, you're alive in a pick five or something. You haven't bet any of the horses. You've had a couple, you know, maybe a $10 winner and you, and you're not showing anything for it. And then you mm-hmm. get booted out of the pick five and you're down for the day. And you're saying, well, why didn't I just take that money and bet it on this horse? <laughs> you know, I could have been up like 300 bucks instead of down 80 bucks or whatever it is. So I, again, it's managing bankrolls deciding what kind of a better you are because you don't have to be good at everything and it's best not to even think that you can be if you want to play those wagers then focus on them have the the support be ready to weather huge long losing streaks so emotionally you have to be able to do that too and focus on that but if you're you're you know if you want to i don't know it, it just depends on your temperament i think more than anything i know myself i've been doing this for so many years now i prefer betting uh, more just wagers where I can really get a handle where I really like one horse and I'll try to play off of that one horse and make a good score on one race. What do you think you said you, you everyone should know like what type of, you know, horse player they are, what their favorite surface, mm-hmm. you know, what type of bet, what type of, what do you think when it breaks down to you, your favorite surface uh, distance and class type, if you had to like, you know, pick the perfect race for you to gamble on. 
Yeah, I, I really like turf routes. Um, they are probably probably because they're tough to handicap. Mm-hmm. You know, turf racing is a whole different animal because it equalizes the importance of speed figures, whereas they don't become such an influencing factor. You know, in dirt sprints, obviously speed figures, whether you're looking at buyer or uh, the sheets, whatever you're looking at, they, they can really... Um, focus you on the two or three horses that should win it doesn't always happen but that you know they're the most likely but with turf routes speed figures can become almost completely meaningless uh, because a lot of the races you know there's slower pace early on it's difficult to even make figures i made figures for a long time at woodbine uh, i did my figs a little bit differently because we we were i think the first track to use trackus Mm. Uh, if not the first, maybe the second. So I, I devised a system where I figured out what, you know, the different distances and I had very specific par charts to each surface, whether it was a synthetic or the turf. Uh, and I made my own speed figures using Trackus data. So I was using how far this, each specific horse traveled you know, whether they were losing big ground around the turns and then their final time. And then I would extrapolate a figure from that. And I did really well at that. That was, it was a lot of work, but it was extremely rewarding. Um, so yeah, if you can, again, that's, that's extra work, but that's finding an edge that other people don't have. So if I'm just using, you know, DRF or whatever you're using, um, time form or you're using Brisnet, whatever you're using to handicap with, and you're looking at the same figures as everyone else. You're you're not allowing yourself to get all that creative with turf routes. I find that there's there's still enough mystery there that I can really shake out some good horses um, because they don't show in figs. I, I think you just hit the nail so much on the head. Uh, one of my favorite guys, Benny Southster, he always says, "Don't let yourself get outworked." Everyone wants to be like Michael Jordan, but nobody wants to do what you know michael <laughs> jordan and kobe bryant and those guys did their work ethic right. was so through the roof everyone just wants all the money without the work and it's like if you don't go to work in general and do that hard work you don't get paid to begin with so now you're just trying to do it with a hobby that everyone else really enjoys yeah it's so true and and we are a little lazy you know and it's and it's nice and it's the big appeal of and you read stories about the big hits and it's why people buy lottery tickets you know because there is that chance for the big score. Well, there's always a chance for the big score. But to be consistent, you know, to actually position yourself as as somebody who's doing this as a living to make money, you have to do the work. You, you have to watch the replays. You have to know the trainer tendencies. You have to know what the track's doing, what the weather is. Like, like there's just so many variables going into it. And at the end of the day, you can put all those hours of work in and end up minus money. You know, you can have losing years. Even if you're a mm-hmm. really, really good handicapper and better, there can just be years where things don't line up, and then there's years where things are fabulous. So having uh, having that preparation is so important, but there's no guarantee that it's going to pay off. Let's put all that preparation to the test right now. Let's get started with these races from last Saturday's plate trial card at Woodbine. We're going to start right. off with race number eight at Woodbine. It was the... 150k plate trial going one and one eighth miles on the synth. What were your thoughts in this race, Don? Well, a, a couple things to know going into it. So right now, you know, I talked about trainer tendencies, jockey tendencies. Rafael Hernandez, who used to ride in the states, has made his home at Woodbine the last several years now. And right now, he is just he's getting the best horses. He is a very, very capable rider, and he's good on. He's good at everything. I mean, he really doesn't specialize. He's good on the turf. He's good on the synthetic. Route sprints doesn't matter. So right away, you notice that he's on the favorite. Um, Clayton is the favorite. Very lightly raced Colt. If I had any trepidations about what this horse would do, I'd say, you know, here he is, just a fourth-time starter. He's done everything right so far. Um, Had the one start at the age of two, which I always think – you know, I trained and owned horses for many years. And I really think that that racing at the age of two is so important because it sets a horse's body up physically to kind of uh, adapt to what stressors they're going to need, you know, in terms of bone composition and everything else. So that to me is is a good thing to see. So he had the one start, one crushed, you know, going five furlongs, probably not ever going to be his best distance. The fact he won so easily was impressive. Came back, 
finished well in a seven furlong race. And then you get the route. And he just sat in behind and Hernandez had him perfect spot and he won. So seasoning was a little bit of a question mark, but in terms of speed figures, rider, trainer, breeding, you know, pedigree to get a little bit of distance going the, the nine furlongs, everything suggested that the horse was going to be the best. And, you know, for all of that, you end up with a three to five shot. For me going into it, I was trying to find something that was a little bit, not spicier, but just something that I thought, like we said, the seasoning was a little bit on the shorter side. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't been playing enough of Woodbine to where I kind of know like what the plate trial winners look like going into the actual, you know, big event coming up soon. Uh, Dotted line for me was a very interesting horse. I just like the fact that even though, you know, broke the maiden at the claiming level, then two super nice wins at stake level comes back in the Queenston and just to me, it felt like a prep for the, the grade three Marine. And he ran super well in there at 19 to one coming third by four and a quarter. And then I just thought if he's going to run third in a grade three, not, and not knowing the par and the levels for, I thought maybe not so much that it was a drop in class, but that this one could be dangerous at a price. And Mm -hmm. he was decent at eight to one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you started looking for alternatives and he showed a lot of speed as a two year old and even in his first race off the shelf, seven furlong sprinting. So you get a horse that you know is going to be in good position and, and tactically that's always a good thing too. No, it's not a very big field, so it be, it can become a bit of a jockey's race too when you're looking at a field of six. And uh and I thought he he ran well. The problem was is that he had to use them, right? Because dotted line and halo again ended up kind of setting uh setting camp right beside each other and and they went quick they 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 went quick quickly enough it wasn't super fast but it was an honest enough pace for the level uh and i think that made him susceptible late um i thought halo again ended up running a a big race Uh, he was second choice on the board so it's not like that was any any secret there it's tough to redboard this race with any sort of authority because it looks like the top two horses went on out there and just did what they were supposed to do you know halo again from the steve asmussen stable um, he ran well. He ran his race. Uh, if Clayton, you know, Clayton, I think was heads and shoulders though, because even if you go back and watch the replay, that he was a little bit, he didn't want to settle early, uh, a little bit headstrong, which again, the seasoning played in there. I think if he was going to lose a race, this would have been the one, just because he didn't want to settle for Raphael. But it didn't matter at the end. He was he was just the best. But yeah, I I like what you were thinking there. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out. <laughs> uh- if you were wagering in this race, what did you do from a wagering perspective just before we get to the race call? Yeah, well, you know, you're looking at a, you're looking at a horse that's going to be a short price, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find a way to beat him. So at that point, I'm starting to look. I actually start to look ahead to the races that are behind it and, mm-hmm. like, look at the race before and the race after, see if maybe I can – because there's rolling doubles. So you see if there you can, you can um, shake something out there. Uh, as it was, there wasn't really anything to get too excited about in terms of that. So I think like flat exacta here uh, for me, uh, it, it looked like the two best horses were, were going to be Clayton and Halo again. And, and uh, you know, instead of trying to like bet a hundred bucks on Clayton, you, you play a hundred dollars straight exacta and it paid okay. When, like you said, you looked instantly for the, for the double. Are, when you see a short price favorite, either, you know, six to five or even under even money, do you tend to lean more towards doubles or do you tend to lean more towards that straight exact to try to find the horse in a race compared to trying to, you know, find the winner in two straight races? I'll look at, I'll look at both. I like to explore my options. If I have a strong opinion about who I think, you know, is going to be the second, because now, you know, if I really think one horse stands out, then I don't even want to, I'm not boxing. I'm not wasting money doing that. I don't want to bet like a flat exacta. So if I can find maybe one or two other horses and, and get, what I think will be a decent exacta. Yeah, I'll definitely play it that way. But I do like to look at the doubles too, um, because you have more control there as opposed to playing, you know, you can you can stretch it out even if you want to play rolling pick threes because there's that option too. But I find doubles at Woodbine really offer value, uh, you know, a lot of times depending on who you're teaming it up with. And if you have a contrarian opinion, you know, if I'm going to make one of the double plays a heavy favorite like Clayton, then I better have a pretty solid opinion of something that's going to not be a favorite in one of the other two races. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot of uh, sense in playing it that way. For me, it was the number two dotted line in the Daily Gallup head-to-head tournament, trying to get ahead in that. 
for Dawn. She played a straight exacta. Clayton over Halo again. Let's watch Clayton win the Queen's Plate trial right now. Racing in the plate trial, Clayton bore across a little bit out in front, dotted line with Halo again on the inside, glorious tribute, Clayton the centre, and back second last is Elusive Knight, and last is Northern Thunder. They settle down at the wire the first time with four lengths first to last, and on the inside in front, dotted line with Halo again. Two lengths to Glorious Tribute and Clayton, they're in pairs, and the pair at the back is Elusive Knight on the outside of Northern Thunder. Dotted line shows the way by about a half a length. Almost three parts now. Halo again and tucked away as Glorious Tribute on the inside tracks them in third and ahead to Clayton. A length and a half, Northern Thunder, and on the outside is Elusive Knight. They reach the backstretch in the plate trial and Dotted line is the leader. By a, almost a length to Halo again. Clayton getting keen to go forward and on the inside Glorious Tribute. Back second last, Elusive Knight and just behind is Northern Thunder. There's been no shift to position and Justin Stein and Dotted Line in front. Up on the outside, Halo again. Right behind is Clayton and Glorious Tribute on the fence. And back to second last, Elusive Knight and Northern Thunder. There's certainly not much between them as they race towards the three and a half. Out in front, Dotted Line quickening and Halo again. Asked to run now. A length and a half, Clayton called on. Back on the inside, Glorious Tribute starting to tire a little bit there. And then coming on the outside, Elusive Knight with a nice run. They go down to the final quarter and the race on between Halo again, Dotted Line and breathing down their necks, Clayton sidles up to them. Clayton on the outside, ranges up to tackle Halo again and dotted line. Dotted line on the inside, joined by Clayton. The center, Halo again. They lay it down, the trio. Clayton on the outside, showing a little bit of supremacy now. Clayton in front. Halo again is a battler and comes back. Clayton trying to put them away. Halo again coming back, but Clayton in front. Clayton's won the plate trial a half a length. Halo again second, dotted line third, and then glorious tribute on the outside, elusive night, and a long last, Northern Thunder, race time, 150-61. At number three, Clayton does win under even money, paying 330 with a buyer of 89. Dawn hit her exact, it only paid four and change, but you turn an under even money shot into an even money shot. Thoughts on the recap, Dawn? Yeah, well, actually, and that's for a dollar exactly too. Mm -hmm. So four thirty five. So yeah, it ended up being not too bad. Um, it, yeah, nothing, you know, other than than Clayton being a, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, he's again the greenness coming through. But this is a colt on the improve. So uh, we'll watch for him to bounce out of this this race and uh, head towards the plate. Get ready for that, and and we'll see what what he does. The you know, with every every day that goes by, a horse like this should get smarter and smarter. So he should be even better next time out. Now, this is something I love to do. Uh, the buyer was only a one-point increase from an 88 to an 89. Halo, again, actually mm -hmm. improved seven points. So for people who, you know, people who bet Halo, again, you are probably on the right path. This horse just improving that one point and being a little bit more uh, lightly raced probably got that horse across the line. When you're looking back through the result charts and looking at buyers and, and or Brisnet, whatever you're using, uh do you tend to like you know make a big circle on the horses that improve the most, even if maybe they only limped up for third or fourth? That way you can kind of make that note later. Like big improvement today. Look for next time out for more improvement. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point because it can it can really go either way. Like sometimes you get that big improvement and then a horse just regresses to what they will normally run. Mm -hmm. So that can be a double-edged sword. Now we're talking three-year-olds. Um, so you want them to be better than they were as two-year-olds. Obviously, you want to see that progression. Um, dotted line with him, he's, he's stepped up big time in his last couple of races. Halo against, same story. You know, he ran a 76 buyer as a, as a two-year-old. Pops up in the Queenston with an 81. And then, like you said, he really, really improved. So is he likely to take another step forward? It can happen, but uh, he might get stopped up where he is right now. So I'd be, you know what, I'd be a little bit uh, leery of him next time, to be quite honest. I mean, this could be just an improving horse with the extra distance. He's getting happier and happier. They wanted to route him last year. They looked for those longer races. Um, but he improved so much that I would be almost, I'd be almost inclined to go the other way and say that he'll regress a little bit. One of my favorite handicapping books that I think is almost uh, a gem. It was on the DRF library for so long. It's called Speed Despair. And in one of the chapters, they talk about every time a horse improves their buyer past two or three times, 
the percentage of him improving again drops so drastically. So a lot of times I look for, you know, that two races of improvement, and then I try to hammer that third race hoping it's improvement, and then I try to fade, like you had said. He went from mm-hmm. uh, 67 to 83 to 88. So this was probably the right time and the right price at 8 to 1 to be on this horse, but next time out you're probably going to see 7 to 2, 3 to 1, and this horse is a very good chance, unless if he just, like you said, enjoyed the stretch out in distance – that he could be an absolute play against where people are hammering, and you might find that next eight to one shot that has that two little point improvement and just needs to get a little bit higher up. Yeah, exactly. And I always, you know, when you're when you're looking at figures too, it's it's important to to remember that it's how the rate how the figure was garnered. You know, it's like what happened in the race. Was it the horse was sitting behind two dueling speed horses and just sat there and watched them, and then came and ran past them and got a huge fig? Or was the horse battling the whole way and or wide in in the race? You know, so it's really important too to not just take numbers at face value, to think about how the the, the figure ended up being what it was and how hard the horse had to work for it. One of my best plays against is uh, the slow pace maiden winner jumping up into an allowance race. They're just mm-hmm. so used to that slower pace, and then they end up facing you know horses that may have lost three or four times at allowance races, but now they finally get that race set up where this horse that had that sweet 95 buyer ends up looking down at a 75, and everyone goes, well, why that horse dropped 20 points? Well, because he didn't get that, you know, 24 flat opening quarter. Now he had to go 22 (laughs) and 3, and that's a big difference because for me as well, I was a uh, cross-country runner. I understand that when you try and go with the big boys in your your conference and you're gassed at the mile pole and you're like, oh, this is why I should have been pacing myself better. Like, it really matters when it comes down to pace like that, especially, like, that specific angle is so important, especially on the Naira circuit, where people complain about how the jockeys do pace. That angle still works to this day in Naira. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's one thing to, you know, again, it's the, the little bit of laziness. We just want to look at a number and say, oh, okay, yeah, this horse is faster than this one. But but no, you, you need to interpret the figure. And, and yeah, I'm a runner, too. And I, I know it. Like it's so important that first part of the of running, if you go out too fast, it's like you're just cooked after. I know it's funny and you can run like the, you'll end up running slower than you than what you would have done if you had started out at a sensible pace and saved some energy and uh, and so important is this ag- exact same thing for horses it takes a lot out of a horse too when they have another one looking them in the eyeball even you know that's another scenario with pace even if the fractions aren't super fast if there's two of them going side by each something to be said for um just that competition that a horse can get a little bit more um you know, just just into its mind, a little bit more excited, and and can tire a bit more than they normally would too if they get away on the lead by themselves. A couple of my friends are UFC fighters, and the way I've always you know talked about you know horses head and head is the guy might not think that guy has knockout power, and then he finally gets hit by him that first time. He's like, oh, I have to you know be more careful here. This guy can really hit me with that one punch <laughs> knockout power. And I feel like that's very true in that way. If a horse goes head and head, you see some horses, they want nothing to do. As soon as they get headed, they're back of the pack and they're getting pulled up because everyone thinks there's something wrong. And he just decided to quit that day. He wants yeah. nothing to do with that horse going 22 flat. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. You know, and so when you look at that performance, you have to gauge it based on that. And, you know, the most dangerous horse, especially in dirt sprints, is the one that can shake loose on the lead because they will often get brave and run much quicker figures than they would if uh, something else was going on. Let's jump over into the next race. This is my favorite race on the card. It was the ninth at Woodbine, the grade two King Edward uh, going one mile on the turf. What were your thoughts here, Don? I love the flat mile. It's it, so on much a Woodbine fun. Turf course. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's a one turn mile and that big, you know, the EP Taylor turf course is just, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's a huge circumference. That turn is so gradual and kind and you can, you can usually get a good trip, you know, no matter what happens. So this is a good race looking at it, going into it. I, I thought there were, there was enough speed in here. That was the big thing. I've, I've kind of handicapped it thinking there was going to be a quick pace, um, because a horse like Silent Poet uh, was in there coming off his Connaught Cup win, and Justin Stein just he battled, he battled, and the horse was coming off two wins where he battled throughout at slightly shorter distances, and one was on the inner track, uh, the inner the new inner course too, um, and the seven horse Admiralty Pier who was in the Connaught Cup and battled with Silent Poet and lost the battle, but he was coming 
uh, first start off of a little layoff coming back from Florida. So there was a lot of intrigue to me. I thought that the early part of this race was going to be the deciding factor. And uh, and that that colored my handicapping a little bit, I have to say. It's interesting when you look at certain horses, like one for me, March the Arch, won the Wise Dan last year at grade two. And then coming into this year, he just he was placing a couple grade threes. Then they put him in the Shoemaker. He got his doors blown off. They put him in the Wise Dan again. <laughs> Uh, that that's kind of my favorite running line when they lose by six, which seems like a lot, but it's only two and a quarter lengths on turf. I know it's supposed to be a lot closer and that looks more like a, like a decent dirt race, but people see the six, they never look at the lengths and they just instantly say, Oh, bad race in a grade two that he won last year. And they just kind of look elsewhere without even realizing it's Cassie with one of the leading riders at Woodbine. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was uh, going to be quite the combination. So March to the Arch, a well-traveled horse. He's been everywhere. He was in Florida, and he went to California, and then he was in Kentucky. So he's had a pretty aggressive campaign. So that was you know, something I looked at too. Now he'd had a, a really nice freshening before coming into, uh, into this race and, you know, hadn't run since June 20th, but still a lot of shipping. The beauty that, that wise down race that he uh, was in, in his previous start was huge. His last fraction in there was 28 and four, you know, he was flying at the end. It's just, they got away from him a little bit. Uh, it worked the year before, uh, he was able to be not so far back and, and was able to capitalize with the win. But March to the Arch, I remember this horse because he ran at Woodbine back in 2018. He um, he started his career in Florida, but then he did come to Woodbine. And he won the Toronto Cup at a mile and an eighth on a given course uh, and did it in, in with a good figure of 86 uh, back in 2018. So I knew that he would like the course. Um, that wasn't going to be an issue. So he definitely looked like a big player. You were talking about that uh, that last fraction time. What is a good fraction time for you for most of the turf routes? Are you looking for something that's, you know, you said uh, 28 and 4. What's a good fraction time for other certain distances when you're talking about turf routes? Um, for a mile, anything under 24 is, is decent. Uh, if it gets under 23, you're really looking at something that was flying home. Um, uh, the mile on the 16th, anything below 30 mm-hmm. really looks, you know, like a, like a solid pace. Um, you get into the nine furlong races and anything below 36 starts to kind of prick up my ears a little bit um you know around 35 even can be kind of interesting kinda, so kinda, those are kind of my baselines you kind of have the six second increments 24 30 36 yeah, for all those absolutely. new players out there that's something that you can really look for uh if you use something like drf formulator you can literally make it act like that where you can see the fractional times of the horses and then you can just start circling going throughout okay this guy was sub 24 this guy was sub 30 and it really helps when you're looking for those turf routes, because everyone talks about it's class and late pace, and that's all that really matters in these types of races. It is. Uh, and again, uh, taking it in overall context, too, because a horse, much like March to the Arch in the Wise Den, you can come that last fraction in 28 and 4, but if they're already like, you know, away from you and going on, it doesn't matter. You're going to be uh, sixth beaten two and a quarter, look good doing it, but get no money. Two more questions before we get to your wagering strategy. Uh, Mark Cassie had two in here. What are your thoughts on when a certain on tra- certain trainers have two in the race? I know a lot of people say, you know, oh, the other Chad beat me today. You know, other people look at like, you know, with, with a coupled entry, it's always, you know, the one entry that looks fantastic, but it's the other one that wins. Do you have any uh, certain thoughts on that aspect of racing? Yeah, it's, well, you know, it would buy in a couple of years ago, uh, three years ago now, maybe they stopped, like there are no more entries mm-hmm. at all, zero, even if it's common ownership. And I, I think that that's important for uh, the betting public. I think that's something that should happen everywhere, um, especially with some of the shorter fields we're seeing now. I think coupling entries just really takes away from, from the options that people have. Hey, it's there's big money to be won when when you're like the the trainers, the owners, they're they're trying to win purse money. Um, here in this specific race, Cassie was training for one of his main, like two of his main owners, yeah. John Oxley and Live Oak. You know, so he's had horses for them for years. These are both homebreds too. So there's a lot on the line. You know, there's like Dreammakers. Uh, he's still a colt, son of Tappet. Um, March the Arch is a gelding now, so there's no future potential for him there. But uh, 
but you're trying to win races and, and you find spots where you think you can get graded status on a horse. Very important, especially if they're mares uh, or especially if they're colts. I feel like I went super, super dumb in this race. The, the horse I actually ended up on was uh, Delaware, the Chad Brown horse, and it went against one of my number one uh, imports kind of shipping over. If they don't win that first start, I tend to just avoid completely because to me, unless if they win their second, they never, ever come out and win, you know, five, six races in, or if they do, it's either because there's such a short price and they just end up in the right type of field I don't know. What are your thoughts on when you see a horse ship in and not really win the first couple starts? Well, he was, you know, he was the lazy pick, and I was guilty of it too. Mm-hmm. I really thought Delaware would be a good horse in here. He's, the breeding, and you look at it, he's a son of Frankel. You know, he runs from the Judmont farm, so you know the broodmare is absolutely divine. Uh, and and there was excuses that you could make because I agree with you. But the, but the first two starts, he he hit seven furlong races. So you're thinking, well, he probably wants to go a little further than that. You know, he was running a lot of miles. He was two for seven at the distance. Um, the first start, they ran him naked. They had no Lasix. Uh, then so the second start, they come back and they add the Lasix and they put blinkers on him. And he actually ran well, had the inside post position, so there's another excuse. Uh, ran into a little bit of traffic uh, trouble, so there's another excuse. So there was a lot of reasons to think that this horse was really going to step forward, and uh, boy, did he not. <laughs> so let's talk uh, your wagering strategy. I, I guess you were on Delaware as I was. Did you do anything else in the race? Yeah, I was on Delaware. I, I like. I was intrigued by the speed matchup between Admiralty Pier um, and Silent Poet. So I figured that the early fractions and even Argentello was, uh, you know, one that might have been uh, interesting. Mr. Ritz has shown a lot of speed. There was a lot of pace in this race, so it looked like the closers were going to get a fair shake. And I think that that really brought March to the arch into the discussion because it did look like there was going to be a lot of speed in front of them. So um, those were my two main guys, and here was March to the arch and. Uh, and Chad Brown, because I was just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was also the lazy Chad Brown pick of Delaware. Let's see who wins the grade two King Edward Stakes right now. Away in racing and then King Eddie and best into stride Admiralty Pier and Silent Poet. They came away from the opposition early by two lengths to Eskaminzen. Delaware on the outside as Admiralty Pier floats away in front. Coming up the rails, Mr. Ritz slicing into third spot, tracked by Argentello as Dreammaker also joins the party. And last is March to the Arch. Racing out in front by about a half is Admiralty Pier nudging forward. Silent Poet and Mr. Ritz is on the inside. Right behind them, Argentello settling well. Eskimins on the outside. One to Dreammaker under a tight rein. And back second last, Delaware. And last is March to the Arch. Admiralty Pier still out in front. Out by almost a length, trying to come away from Silent Poet as they raced out towards the half mile. And now taking off Eskimenza. Mr. Ritz got checked there. Argentello's come through to share third as Mr. Ritz got a length and a half behind the top four. A couple away as Delaware. A march to the arch on the inside, inching into it. And a couple away, last Dreammaker. Admiralty Pier has been very assertive out in front. A length Argentello. Silent Poet is still handy in the center. And now to the outside, Mr. Ritz as they corner up the inside. March to the arch. Silent Poet not done with it all is coming. Admiralty Pier taken on by Silent Poet. And they're clear of Mr. Ritz down the outside. It's Admiralty Pier fighting tooth and nail, however. March to the arch is wriggling through the... Might beat them all. March to the arch, rattling home on the outside. And March to the arch is grabbing Admiralty Pier in the final furlong and really has come alive beautifully for Rafael Hernandez. Wins the King Eddie by two lengths. March to the arch from Admiralty Pier, silent poet and Mr. Ritz. And the number two, March to the arch, does get it done, paying 960 with a nice buyer of 101. Dawn, what were your thoughts on that running? That was a good race. I tell you what, you know who deserved to win that race was Admiralty Pier. He ran his eyeballs out because, uh, as expected, uh, he and Silent Poet threw it down again. Mr. Ritz was close up, too. And they went. They went a steady tempo, you know, 23 and 2, uh, or 23 and 4, 46 and 1. So they were going. A six furlong split was 9 and 1. They, and he didn't get a chance to rest because as soon as he put Silent Poet away, uh, Admiralty Pier had to deal with March to the Arch, who was like a total opportunist. Again, you're getting a very, very smart, crafty live rider in Rafael Hernandez. He had that horse, March to the Arch, in the perfect position to, to capitalize. He got the trip. You know, it, it just it, everything worked out for him. Admiralty Pier, kind of unlucky in defeat. 
when you look at Admiralty Pier, though, it's interesting. He ran another 98, so that's four 98s out of the last 10 races. Maybe we just won't be, ever be able to see that triple-digit buyer. Maybe the high 90s is where the max out is for this type of horse. Yeah, it's very possible. You know, he's, he's not going to fool anybody now. He's a five-year-old son of English Channel. Um, and that's that's what he is. That's that's as quick as he's ever gone. But it's nice to see that at the age of five that he's very consistent that way. You know, so he's he's not losing a step at all. And there's good opportunities for horses like that. If you get a course that's got a little bit of give to it, he he might be. You know, there's there hasn't been a lot of rain in Toronto mm-hmm. too, which. Um, you know, it can tend to favor speed horses on the turf. So he might have been actually enhanced a bit by the fact that the, the course would be pretty firm. So it's it's difficult to say. I mean, that all factors in your handicapping. But uh, the seven furlong mile distance for a horse like Admiralty Pier, just it really seems to be a nice trip for him. Our lazy pick of Delaware. This horse doesn't even hit the board. <laughs> I guess uh, this is what we get for being lazy, right? Yeah, he was bad. I mean, he really was. Like he and March the Arch were kind of hanging out you know, not far from each other. And uh, March the Arch put in a good run, and certainly uh, Delaware didn't. He he just came up flat. And, and you can't – you could say a lot of things. Like, me, he might not have liked the course. Like, the course might have been too firm for him. That can happen for the more uh, European runners. They get here, and we haven't had that rain, and they're used to running on a little bit a uh, track with more give. So, you know, the, when it rains, watch for those horses. Watch for those Euros because that's their preferred running surface. I think for me, too, I think now I'm really going to stick and dig in my claws here. Um, the horse now hasn't won three times since coming overseas. I think that he definitely uh, needs class relief. And if I don't see him in an allowance, which by, I'm sure he'll be, you know, six to five, seven to five or under even money. I still think that I'm going to want to try to uh, try and beat this horse. Yeah, you know, I'd be curious to see him shorten up a bit, even mm-hmm. like he went a couple seven for a little. I would be curious to see this horse go six at Belmont. I think that that might somehow be his kind of gig where he can get in behind and just like come with a big, big late run. So I'll I'll be curious to see where uh, Judd Mont and Chad go with this horse next. Obviously, the one Mark Cassie gets the win. Dreammaker at double digits, twenty to one, does not. Just a thing where maybe I know he was second off of a very long layoff. Maybe they just need to kind of keep this horse in the allowance ranks until they can kind of get that confidence level back up. Yeah, he, you know, he started out uh, like he was going to be a nice colt. Uh, you know, they put him in the hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, they had him in the, the breeder's futurity where the wheels fell off there. So something happened early on in his career. He had a tough time getting back on track, but they were still pretty aggressive with him in the Tampa Derby and the Bluegrass. So they had high hopes for this horse, and it unfortunately hasn't really panned out. Um, maybe they'll pop him on the grass, you know, again and, and see. It was his first first try on turf. So uh, there's that too. Maybe they'll, they'll give him a chance in a in an upper level allowance on grass and see how he does. I think this is the type of just actual profile when you look at it. Can win the maiden off the board and a great stake off the board and a great stake wins uh, first start at what would have been three in the optional 50k and then off the board until the Pat Day Mile where he won a pretty well beaten third. This horse just seems that he might just end up being the nice optional claiming high allowance type horse where he might just end up winning, you know, the 62 fives over and over again when he's in for the claiming tag. Yeah, it's possible. It, it really looks like something happened to him early on, um, you know, and it's like physical that sidelined him. Obviously, he's a four-year-old. Just He was just making his ninth start here. So I think they probably had high hopes from early on. And it's tough to get away from that. When you, knew, when you know a horse was meant to be something and then things happen, it's difficult to change your mind about him. But, uh, but yeah, you could be right. Um I'd give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit and see if uh, with another couple of starts, if he doesn't get a little bit better, if he can keep, if he can come back in regular order, he needs to get on a regular rotation. Let's go ahead and talk about the last race for this podcast. It was race number 10. We're doing the awesome straight pick three for this podcast. It was the restricted Woodbine Oaks, 500,000 purse going one and one eighth on the synth. Super fun race. Who'd you like in here, Dawn? Yeah, this this one was tough to to kind of take a stand against the favorite too, right? Like Curlin's Voyage, she really looks like she's going to be something, and it just seems that the further she goes, the better she'll go. And I like watching horses like that, young horses. I mean, they had big hopes for her early on because her debut race 
was against the boys in the Victoria going five and a half furlongs. Uh, daughter of Curlin, like her, her pedigree looks, you know, it's, it's suggesting it's longer than that, but she was able to finish second in there. She ran a big, big race. So right away you say, Oh, interesting that they thought that, you know, and that's not a, the MO of Josie Carroll. Some trainers will pop them in like Wesley Ward does that uh-huh. all the time, right? He'll run his fillies against the boys constantly. Um, but a lot of trainers don't, um, Josie Carroll's certainly not scared to, she's won the queen's plate with a filly. But Curlin's voyage, the fact that that's where she debuted right away is like, okay, this is something special. And she's gone on. She only had one start that hasn't been a stake race so far, and that was when she was able to win her maiden pretty easy style. So uh, you know that they know that this horse is something, and, and she handles the synthetic well. So it was tough for me to get past her. It was interesting. I actually ended up on the outside, uh, the Richard Lauren Philly Infinite Patience, just a horse that's five for six with improving numbers, and now goes in. I understand that it's a training change from uh, the Barber Head Barn, but just when a horse is five for six, they're obviously doing something right, and they like to race. And I thought when, yeah. I, when I look at this race and see uh, the horse is going to be seven to one compared mm-hmm. to you know a Curlin's Voyage under two to one, I think I have the right edge there to take that shot and pop and try to you know beat a horse that probably is still the goods. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I, I guess kind of local, you know, when you start to look. So so she won five. She was undefeated, but that was out in Vancouver, right? Yeah. And that's where Barbara Head's great trainer, um, does really a, a well out in British Columbia. So she basically was just heads and shoulders above anything out there, enough so that they, they shipped her here. And Lauren Richards, he's a great guy. Um, he's got a lot of Western connections, so taking over the training. A really good trainer, too. He hasn't run that many this year. Uh, but she ran well in the Fury. My knock against her would only be the distance, like getting nine furlongs. And she's a speed filly on the outside. So right away, if anything else was going to go inside of her, she was going to have to be that much better than everybody else. And, and uh, that was going to be the, the tough task for her. Were you surprised at the price difference between out of that race, uh, Curlin's Voyage won, just leave it alone, at like a huge 23 to 1 who ran second in that race, that they were just so different. One was a long shot 20 to 1, one was like that mid-nice value price 7 to 1, and then obviously the favorite for Curlin's Voyage. Usually you would think that horses that run 1, 2, 3 within a length of each other would be much closer on the odds board. Yeah, it was funny too because, uh, I mean, she gave Curlin's Voyage all she wanted there in the Fury, right? Mm-hmm. Just leave it alone. So, yeah, you could think, you know, she came back and won her maiden. Um, but again, you look at the overall development. Like, she, she was she was at Woodbine for that initial start and then down in Florida. It took her a long time to win the maiden. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's from a quality standpoint, I, I can see why you, you could maybe talk yourself onto her to be under, but it would be really tough to say, yeah, she's going to come close to Curlin's voyage again. I'm not sure exactly why it was so close that day. Um, in the fury, I think that Curlin's voyage just needed to have that race under her belt. And, uh, and she just looks like a Philly again, Whereas the other one, maybe more of a sprinter, Curlin's Voyage looks like a rudder all day long. Let's talk wagering real quick. Was it kind of just Curlin's Voyage and move on? Yeah, pretty much. And to me, it was even tough to find a, a solid exact to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, Curlin's Voyage, uh, you know, and, and to team it up, like, you know, we've had a couple favorites now, so... Well, you know, March to the Arch, see, that would have been a, that, I didn't play it that way. Um, but, but that double, like taking March to the Arch and the lazy uh, Chad Brown pick in the race before with Delaware, <laughs> and having a double rolling on to just curl and voyage, uh, that, that's probably in retrospect as we red board along here. That would have been a nice double to play. But I didn't. <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> for, for me, it was the number 10 infinite patience in, uh, the Daily Gallup head-to-head season, uh, just to let people know, I got knocked out in this round by Ashley Mayu and uh, grade one handicapper uh, Marshall Sterling. So they move on to the next round. Let's see who wins the 500,000 Woodbine Oaks right now. Racing in the Woodbine Oaks and November Fog missed the start slightly. Getting out in front is a Fleet Catherine and Infinite Patience coming across from the extreme outside with Bayou Bell shooting up the rails at the wire the first time and deep on the track. Infinite Patience in front, Bayou Bell in second. The pace is on. A length away third is Mizzen Bow. Uh, Fleet Catherine is over on the inside. Settling in behind them is just leave it alone as they take the turn. And on the inside pilot episode, then Lasting Union, Curlin's Voyage, 
Mevier and November Fog is last. Getting across from the outside gate to be in front is Infinite Patience. Leads the way in the Woodbine Oaks by a length and a half to Bayou Bell. And two lengths away in third position is Mizenbo on the inside of Fleet Catherine. Right behind is Just Leave It Alone and two lengths away Pilot Episode. Well behind the leaders at this point, Lasting Union. Curlin's Voyage trying to get forward. And back second last November Fog and last is Mevier. Really relaxed in front. Infinite Patience is the leader. Infinite Patience leads the way by two lengths. Lying in second, Bayou Bell, the rider looks around, a length of fleet Catherine making ground, up in the set it goes, just leave it alone, Mizenbow three wide, one away, Curlin's Voyage pilot episode dropped out, Curlin's Voyage running up the rail pretty well, but infinite patience in front, November Fogs next Mervier starts to etch into it from the back and well behind now is Lasting Union and last pilot episode Infinite Patience in front. They come to the turn a quarter of a mile to go in the Woodbine Oaks, but Curlin's Voyage has come right through on the inside and sliced to the front. And Curlin's Voyage has got the lead by a length to a fleet. Catherine Infinite Patience can't go on. And down the outside, Mizenbow. Curlin's Voyage in front. Curlin's Voyage chased by a fleet Catherine and Curlin's Voyage head on the chest, holding the lead to the wire. A fleet Catherine and Mervier behind, but Curlin's Voyage wins the Woodbine Oaks beautifully. Two lengths to a fleet Catherine and Mervier. And the number one Curlin's Voyage gets it done paying 470 with a 93 buyer. I guess nothing's going to stop this horse from improving race in, race out. Yeah, and, and you know, you always worried that, see, if you're going to kind of talk against her a, bit, a little bit, you'd say, well, the inside post position, she doesn't have speed, she's likely to get shuffled back, she's going to have traffic, uh, and that's always a big danger. But it's Patrick Husbands, you know, one of the veteran, senior veteran jockeys on the col- in the colony here and uh, and very good at what he does. And and he was able to get enough enough of a space that, you know, she she was she was the best horse. She just needed to be given a, a clear enough trip. We were just laughing. We'll talk about it now. The du- the daily double going from March of the Arts into this one paid eleven forty for a dollar. So I mean, even if you're not a pro player, but you want to, you know, you think you like these two horses and you're looking to try to, you know, make sure Curlin's Voyage gets a higher price for five bucks. It's like forty five fifty dollars. Like that's a pretty good return on investment. Yeah, it's it's not bad. I mean, obviously, I think if Lewis Delaware was the the shorter price of the two, I mean, it wouldn't have paid quite as quite as good with him. Um, but it was still probably going to be reasonable, you know. So uh, yeah, and, and you know, we're redboarding. That's what this show's all about. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, that was really where there was possible value to uh, to get something out of Curlin's Voyage that you weren't getting otherwise. Do you have a certain price that you're looking for when you're looking at exact as like if exact is paying above. 15 for a dollar is that like it doesn't matter what the odds are you're just looking for that solid baseline price to be able to play exactas or the double depends how i'm playing i guess um you know if i'm if i'm just just not even getting cute if i'm not boxing and i'm taking one horse on top of two or three others then obviously it doesn't need to be as much uh, mm-hmm. for me i mean i'd play it if it's like a three to one or something if it if it looks like it's that obvious and you and you just step up your your investment on it a little bit so um, you have to have in your mind though. And that's, I used to, uh, I was a morning line odds maker for, for a little spell out in, in uh, Alberta too. That's an art. And if you can learn that, if you can figure out how to set your own odds line, what you think is fair value, that's the secret to making money in this game mm-hmm. and capitalizing when you feel that you're getting an edge, when the expected payoff is greater than what your line is then that's a play. Um, betting horse that you think should be two to one and it's like six to five, that's a losing play. That's that's not the way to make money in this game. But if you've got that same horse at two to one, uh, and you're fairly confident about it and you're seeing even a price of like five to two or three to one, then you got to step up. Those are the ones where, you know, you really have to move in with some confidence. I think that's the thing that losing players, I understand like if you're not trying to go professional, but if you play 100 races, and I think it was James Quinn who said, if you win 30 to 35 percent of the time at five to two, you have a 20 percent edge in this game. You're still going to lose yeah. double the amount of races you're playing. But that's what matters is that you have to. It's almost like playing poker. You have to play the amount of poker hands to get that churn going, to get that handle going. That makes sure that you can you can't just play 10 poker hands and hope that you're going to you know make a ton of money in the game. 
No, you, and you gotta you gotta throw your hand down more often than you play, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because you're just you look at your cards and you're just thinking that the the probabilities you get really that's why people with a mathematical uh, inclination uh, are able to do so well because you calculate quickly and you say, no, I'm up against it here. You've got to find that edge, you know, with the with the takeout um, it, the way it is in in our game, uh, the track takeout. You've got to find the edge. You've got to be willing to walk away from a horse. And people used to, because I was public handicapper for so many years, and every day I would hear somebody would ask me, who do you like today? And I would turn around and say, well, what's the price? <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Because you can't fall in love with a horse. You, you just, you can't. You've got to, you've got to look at what you're being offered in terms of price. And that has to be how you play this game. Last question before we let you go. Obviously, this was the plate trial. This is everything getting ready for Queen's Plate. Have you heard anything about certain horses aiming for it, or is there any horse from this specific card that you like going into that day if they end up entering for a race on that day? I'll tell you what. I'm I'm hoping that uh, the Philly Curlin's Voyage goes in. Because she, she ran a big race. Like, she's they, that race went, you know, you look at – splits and everything it was a it was a pretty fast early pace of 46 and change and they ended up going um just over 150 um the boys race off of much slower early fractions 49 ended up going just a couple fifths slower so clayton looks like he probably went the better race if you start to factor in uh overall pace in there but he also got a pretty cozy trip too so i would hope that they would take a chance with her you know they they look like clearly the two horses out of these races um, and we'll have to see who else who else comes in for the big day. Um, you know who else is pointing because not everything filtered through these two races. If you guys aren't listening to the end of these podcasts, it should be just gave you a really solid horse, possibly for Queen's Plate Day. Dawn, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you on social media to talk to you about all things horse racing? Yeah, you can. I'm I'm on Twitter uh, at Don Lupul, D A W N L U P U L. I've been a little quiet lately because uh, I'm playing for myself these days. <laughs> so I've been keeping my cards a little closer to my chest than I maybe would have in the past. But uh, yeah, it's all, always fun to hear from people and uh, and engage on that platform. I appreciate you taking your time out today. One of my favorite podcasts of all time for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Spencer, and may all your tickets be cashed. A very special thank you to all of the great fans and listeners of the show and my special guest, Don Lupul. This show has been going on now for one year strong. This sh- show would be the one-year anniversary. Just super glad to still be here. Special thanks to Pete and JK for taking a shot with me. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to everything that there is to come. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornetail. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. Nowhere to hide from my-